0: I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 30. So Michelle Milkowski from Washington State, like many of us, wanted to invest her money wisely to help provide for her family. According to the NPR story, the hype around cryptocurrencies caught her eye and she increasingly became interested in the skyrocketing Bitcoin valuations. She missed out on the first surge in Bitcoin prices back in 2016, but when she recently saw commercials targeting those afraid of missing out on buying the cryptocurrencies starring quarterback Tom Brady, supermodel Giselle Bundchen, and actor Matt Damon, she started buying different cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a so-called stable coin named Luna. But then, when the cryptocurrencies recently started crashing, today the total valuation of all cryptocurrencies is about $1 trillion, down from a peak of $3 trillion, Michelle panicked and cashed out, losing about $8,000. While Michelle's situation is not unique, there is a key sentence in the NPR article that I wanted to highlight. Speaking of those commercials the celebrities were making about the urgency and need to invest in cryptocurrencies, the article says that those ads included little to no explanation of crypto and how risky the unregulated asset is. The key word here is risk we might not be able to understand why Michelle was bad at assessing the risks associated with cryptocurrencies. Given the temptations around each one of us in the world and the decisions we need to make in our lives about what paths to take regarding future events, it might at least be worthwhile to try to get a better understanding of risk. And so for this podcast episode, I wanted to do a deep dive on exactly that, the history of and just what do we mean by risk. We'll do this by diving into the book, Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk, written by Peter Bernstein. Okay, let's dive in. Today in organizations and in management, we automatically assume that we need to get a handle on uncertainty in some product development process or when making a large business acquisition by performing a risk analysis as part of due diligence. Risk experts today likely would try to quantify the risk of some future event using two components, the probability of that event happening, as well as the impact of the event. Today, we understand both components are necessary. After all, the chance of getting struck by lightning is very small, but because of the big impact, pun intended, we know to head indoors during a thunderstorm. However, even today, There is not just one way to define or quantify risk. But as this book makes clear, risk, as the idea that we can try to make something uncertain and unknowable, at least more identifiable and understandable, is a modern concept. The point is that today we center ourselves in relation to the future. We try to quantify what is to come in order to give ourselves agency for our choices and decisions. Whereas in the past we had quite a different relationship with our cosmic timeline. So the story of the ideas around risk and their evolution in our cultural timeline is one main element of the book. Another main element is the tension between those in society who believe risk can be quantified by looking at the past and those in society who believe an uncertain future is best known through our subjective degrees of belief. So where to begin? The book takes us back to the story of Pontius Pilate's soldiers casting lots for Jesus' robe he wore on the cross, and to the story of the Earl of Sandwich inventing the snack called, you guessed it, the sandwich, (laughs) so the Earl could stay at the gambling tables, and to the story of George Washington hosting game nights in his tent during the American Revolution. The point is that humans have loved to play at gambling games, especially games of chance with cards and dice. Note here my use of games of chance, as opposed to games of skill. A game of dice depends on chance, whereas a game of poker also involves elements of skill. Yet in early societies, such as to early Greek society, chance was not known as a form of what we would today call probability. Instead, your chance at winning a game depends on your fate, or on a favor from the gods. Yet the Greeks also knew about proportion such as the Golden mean, that govern the proportions of famous buildings, such as the Parthenon. Fibonacci began working out the numbers behind those proportions, giving us today the eponymous Fibonacci series. Other early cultures, too, were busy with numbers, such as the Hindu-Arabic number system, and especially their development of the concept for the number zero. And the word we know and love today, if you are a follower of this podcast, algorithm, comes from the very name of a famous Arabic mathematician. Yet despite these impressive achievements, those early cultures had no concept of probability or risk. The author says, Why, given their advanced mathematical ideas, did not the Arabs proceed to probability theory and risk management? The answer, I believe, has to do with their view of life. Who determines our future? The fates, the gods, or ourselves? The idea of risk management emerges only when people believe that they are, to some degree, free agents. So, advancements and developments had to wait until, say, the years 1200 to 1700 to provide our next step on the way to our modern conceptions of risk. During the Renaissance, ideas of proportions brought realism to paintings, double-entry bookkeeping brought precision into financial transactions, and games of chance were taken from the gods and brought to the domain of probability. Figures such as Galileo, Leibniz, Pascal, and Fermat developed mathematical essays to solve problems in throwing dice, geometry, and algebra. Philosopher Ian Hacking said that Pascal, in particular, is called out for founding the theory of decision-making, deciding what to do about some uncertain choice or event. As the book notes, making that decision is the essential first step in any effort to manage risk. And in 1662, the book Logic or the Art of Thinking was published by a group of theologians that contained chapters on probability and statistical inference. More importantly, it included the idea that a decision about some uncertain choice or event should not be based on probability alone. Fear of harm ought to be proportional, not merely to the gravity of the harm, but also to the probability of the event. And as the 17th century came to a close, advancements in calculating life expectancies in cities were key for burgeoning insurance industries in London, and forecasting became an essential tool for entrepreneurs trying to create profitable enterprises all around the world. The next 200 years, from 1700 to 1900, saw key developments in our understanding of risk and measurement. And critical to this understanding was that decisions about risk must involve two conflicting components, the objective facts and our subjective beliefs. Mathematician Daniel Bernoulli in the 1700s attacked conventional ways of quantifying risk based on a calculation known as expected value. One can calculate the expected value of a six-sided dice roll based on the sum of each possible dice roll result multiplied by the probability of actually getting that result. Thus, to the statistician, the expected value of a dice roll for me is the same as for you. Expected value doesn't change based on who is rolling the dice. Yet, Bernoulli realized this pure, quantitative scheme is fine for games of chance, but don't work for real-life events because the meaning or utility of a particular event changes for each person. Some people are happy to fly in a plane, yet others think flying is too unsafe and will instead opt for driving in a car, despite the fact that driving in a car is less safe than flying in a plane. Bernoulli quantified this idea related to finance with the following. The utility resulting from any small increase in wealth will be inversely proportionate to the quantity of goods previously possessed. You may be familiar with the common financial advice that recommends investing in riskier stocks for younger people and more conservative stocks for older people. The idea is that if you are young, you are not likely to have much money and so don't have much to lose by betting on risky stocks. Whereas if you're older, you want to focus less on making money than keeping the money you already have. Anyway, you can think, Bernoulli for that advice. In addition to Daniel Bernoulli's work, his uncle Jacob Bernoulli devised the law of large numbers, which gave assurances for the closeness of the average or of a random sample to the theoretical average, even if that theoretical average is unknown. This point is crucial because if we are to ever get a handle on uncertainty in the real world, as opposed to games of chance, we need to be able to say something about a true but unknown value from just a limited sample. Similarly, French mathematician Abraham de Moivre developed what is now known as the normal distribution, which is sometimes referred to as the bell curve. This curve is fundamental to understanding the likelihood of observing values that deviate from the distribution mean, essential, for example, in manufacturing quality control processes. And Thomas Bayes gave us ways to update our predictions based on new observations. Others during this hotbed time period also contributed to mathematical refinements about inference and calculating probability with numbers. People such as Carl Friedrich Gauss, Marquis Pierre Simon de Laplace, Francis Galton, and Carl Pearson. Yet all of those calculations and models and theories carried significant assumptions most often not found in the real world such as the requirement of independent random trials, rational decision-makers, and that the past is a reliable guide to the future. As the author Bernstein says, until we can distinguish between an event that is truly random and an event that is the result of cause and effect, we will never know whether what we see is what we'll get, nor how we got what we got. The essence of risk management lies in maximizing the areas where we have some control over the outcome while minimizing the areas where we have absolutely no control over the outcome and the linkage between effect and cause is hidden from us. So, this brings us to the years 1900 to 1960 in the book. A pivotal voice in this time period is economist John Maynard Keynes, a member of Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. Keynes understood that the past is not a reliable guide to the future. Quote, The characteristics assumed by the classical theory happen not to be those of the economic society in which we actually live, with the result that its teaching is misleading and disastrous if we attempt to apply it to the facts of experience. Keynes felt that any theory that ignored uncertainty was a useless theory, and he also provided the clearest discussion of what uncertainty means. Quote, by uncertain knowledge, I do not mean merely to distinguish what is known for certain from what is only probably. The game of roulette is not subject in the sense to uncertainty. The sense in which I am using the term is that in which the prospect of a European war is uncertain or the price of copper and the rate of interest 20 years hence, or the obsolescence of a new invention. About these matters, there is no scientific basis on which to form any calculable probability whatever. We simply do not know. This is a subtle point that formed the basis for Keynesian economics, which influenced economic thinking throughout the world from about 1939 to 1979. In essence, because the past is not a reliable guide to the future, it means the future is not inevitable. Our decisions matter. Now, two other people who push back against the idea of a rational decision-maker are Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They developed what is known as prospect theory, which won them the Nobel Prize in economics. The idea is that far from being rational agents, People make decisions in an asymmetrical manner depending on whether they are earning or losing money. People are emotional. When we stand to gain money, we are essentially risk-averse in our decision-making. The book gives this example. Most people will reject a fair gamble in favor of a certain gain. $100,000 certain is preferable to a 50-50 possibility of $200,000 or nothing. Despite all the classical decision-making models of human behavior, this is not the sign of a rational agent. But humans are even more irrational. Instead of a betting scenario where there is a chance of a certain gain, where humans are risk-averse, if you were to switch the bet around, say $10,000 certain loss versus 80% chance of losing $15,000 and a 20% chance of breaking even, humans turn into risk-seekers. Thus, even professional investors are agents of irrationality, says Bernstein of the old Wall Street adage, you never get poor by taking a profit. He says it would follow that cutting your losses is also a good idea. But investors hate to take losses because, tax considerations aside, a loss taken is an acknowledgement of error. Loss aversion combined with ego leads investors to gamble by clinging to their mistakes In the fond hope that someday the market will vindicate their judgment and make them whole. So, with this, to wrap things up, several points come to mind based on the book's look at the history of risk. First, we've seen how the creation of various models and probability calculations have helped humans better understand the future and uncertainty beyond relying on fate, luck, or the will of the gods. Yet there is a danger to an over-reliance on our quantitative skills like wearing seatbelts or driving a large tank uh, makes us more aggressive drivers. We might be more willing to take risks we otherwise would not have taken. Second, we don't incorporate into our models and decision-making processes enough the fact that, to humans, decision-making is a constructive and contingent process. It is not just a simple calculation. Third, I feel that the author Bernstein was actually a little too bullish on probabilistic modeling. The work of Fisher Black and Myron Scholes in pricing options contracts was trumpeted in the book. In fact, Robert Merton and Myron Scholes were awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1997, the year after Bernstein's book was published. Yet the hedge fund Merton and Scholes created based on their models actually went bankrupt <laughs> the year following that. And the entire financial industry collapsed in 2007. And so perhaps the book's fetting of game theory and financial engineering could have been more circumspect. As we've seen many times so far in the Techno Slipstream podcast, we need to better understand the human in our technical models and processes. Unlike Michelle Malkowski that we met at the beginning of the episode, hopefully at least this podcast episode's look at risk helps inform your decision about whether or not to invest in cryptocurrencies. And with that, we come to the end of this podcast episode, which is the sixth and final deep dive in what was our spring-early-summer series, Taking a Critical Look at Technology and Society. We'll be moving to a new series next. You can see the complete series list over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Kendall Giles, in case you want to check out what's coming over the next couple months. You can also find their other writings and discussions, as well as the podcast episode transcripts. In any case, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.